one. When I'm working out, I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer. Jim Calhoun, NASCAR icon Dale Earnhardt Jr. Kirk Herbstreet is on the phone. Here we go. It is Friday, August 11th, 2023. People, I hope everybody's doing well. I hope everybody is having a great day. I hope everybody is ready for the FFE, the fun Friday edition of the Aerator Sports Podcast. Here is what you need to know about today's show. We're going to open, as I told, well, well, first of all, Monday, if you remember, we did the things that I am most intrigued by and interested in, in college football heading into the year. We talked Ohio State, what if they lose to Michigan for a third straight year? Georgia's pursuit of a repeat, the best game in college football in 2023. I bring it up because today feels like a great day to drop part two of the most intriguing storylines in college football heading into 2023. We're going to talk about. Bama with a chip on its shoulder. Texas A&M, what if it goes wrong with Jimbo? What if it goes right with Jimbo? Same with Texas and Sark. Oh, by the way, uh, Notre Dame has a real quarterback this year. It's shaping up to be a very interesting season in the sport. From there, we will take a quick break. We'll come back. As I told you, I said, homework assignment, watch the Johnny Manziel documentary. We are going to discuss that. I I actually got to say, I thought it was excellent. It changed my opinion on Johnny Manziel, so we will talk about that. And finally, we will wrap with America's favorite podcast segment, Aaron Right, Aaron Wrong. Should mention, by the way, I said it on Wednesday's show, I am actually away next week. Uh, It's basically, I took a, a little bit of a vacation in May. This is it. It's go time. It's my last little getaway. Uh, before college football season. And listen, I love what I do. I'm very thankful. I hope all of you took vacation throughout the summer. Uh, But this is really like the recharge before it is officially time to go. So I will be out next week. But here's the good news. Couldn't leave you guys and girls alone. So what I have done is we have some pre-recorded episodes of the college football betting show with Aaron Torres. I preview all of the major conferences. And we're going to run a few of those on this feed next week. So Monday, we will preview the SEC East. I will give you over under win total picks on all the SEC East teams. Uh, Wednesday will be the SEC West. And then Friday, we will wrap with the Pac-12. So I won't leave you hanging. The following week, we are back with new shows, preseason previews, my official college football playoff picks. A lot of good stuff ahead. So off next week, but you'll still get episodes. And then I am back for good on the 21st. So with that said, we do have one more show to do before I go away. Let's not waste any more time and let's get to the topic of the day. Topic of the day. As I told you, you know, first of all, it's good because um, Monday, uh, it just feels like, so Monday we did the most intriguing storylines in college football. Wednesday was a little bit of a busier show. But the good news is it feels like it's been a pretty quiet couple days in college sports and in sports in general since I last recorded. That's good news. It means there's no conferences imploding. It means there's no uh, team switching. The Pac-12 is, you know, it's still dead, but it's not any deader than it was a a week ago. So I bring it up to say this feels like a good time to revisit part two of the most intriguing storylines coming into the year. If you missed Monday's episode, we talked about Ohio State, Michigan. We talked about Georgia going for a three-peat. Make sure to go out, go ahead and check out that episode. But what I want to do now, part two of the most intriguing storylines in college football this year. And boy, oh boy, oh boy, are there some good ones. I got five more for you. Let's get to it. The first storyline that I am super intrigued by. What about Alabama coming into the season just a tiny little bit under the radar? And what I could say, it's actually very interesting, right? So my media career, and I've been in a lot of different roles through the years, so I haven't always been in this role where I've had a radio show or a podcast or whatever, but my kind of media career really started right around the time that Alabama really took off under Nick Saban. And so I bring it up 
because I can say as somebody who's basically been there essentially from the beginning talking about this stuff, I don't ever really remember an offseason quite like this. There were off seasons in the past where Alabama was doubted because they lost a coordinator or they lost a quarterback or they lost a bunch of guys off defense or whatever. There's never really been an off season quite like this, where they have very clearly been surpassed in their own conference. I, I even Alabama fans, I don't think would debate that, but it also feels like a lot of people are ready to hop aboard the LSU hype train coming into the year. And so for the first time that I can really remember, Alabama is coming in under the radar. It doesn't help that we don't know who the quarterback is, which we've discussed at length. But I'll also say this. I think, you know what Nick Saban's got to be doing right now? He's got to be licking his lips and licking his chops, ready for the start of the season and ready to prove all the doubters wrong. And what's interesting to me about Alabama, because I know what a lot of people say, well, Torres, you said this last year. They, they, they didn't win the title the year before, and then – Saban was mad and they were going to be great last year and they were not very good. They went 10 and two. I agree with that. I also think last year there was, uh, you know, listen, a, a veteran core. I, I, I think you understand why so many people like them, myself included, Bryce Young, Will Anderson, et cetera. But what's interesting about Alabama this offseason is there has been a fundamental shift, not just in personnel, but in psyche and mindset, right? Nick Saban. I don't know if he ever officially said it, but he hinted very clearly that when he lost both coordinators, and if you're listening to the podcast, I did air quotes because he didn't lose them. He basically forced them both out. Now, both ended up with a good job. Bill O'Brien is the offensive coordinator with the Patriots. Pete Golding is the defensive coordinator with Ole Miss. But I bring it up to say, when he lost both coordinators, it was clear that he was ready to see them leave and ready to fundamentally change who Alabama is and I think we saw that with the coordinator hires. Tommy Reese in as the offensive coordinator, and of course, Kevin Steele back as the defensive coordinator. So the changes have been made, and I think the psyche has been changed as well. You go back and look at Alabama the last few years, and we've talked about this, and every college football podcast in America that's any good has probably talked about this as well, is that I do think Alabama got a little bit soft over the last couple of years. Remember, last year, they couldn't run the football. They were ranked, I think, about 30-31 nationally in rushing yards, seventh in the SEC alone. And so that speaks to the fact that they were a little finesse. I, I don't think they ever really had an identity on offense. Well, this year, we know what it is. It is ground and pound and beat you into oblivion. That's why Tommy Reese was hired, and that's what all the players in this offseason are saying. They're saying, no more Mr. Nice Guy. We have an identity. This is what we're going to do. And Tommy Reese, as the coordinator, was brought in for this exact moment to toughen this team up, to get them back to running the football, and I'm fascinated to watch him. I've said it before, interested in the fundamental kind of psychological change, but then also the schedule is worth noting as well. All those really tough games that they either struggled with last year or flat out lost at Texas, barely survived, at Tennessee, at LSU, they lost. At Ole Miss, they barely survived. All those games now are at home. So Alabama, I think the schedule is a little bit more advantageous, and I am fascinated to watch them under this new identity and with this new psyche. Speaking of a new psyche, this to me is one of the more interesting storylines that I think is actually a little bit under the radar coming into this year. It's at Notre Dame, and Notre Dame for the first time, we just talked about Tommy Reese leaving Notre Dame to become the offensive coordinator at Alabama. Notre Dame, this is so fascinating. For the first time in pretty much as long as I can remember, they actually have a real quarterback under center. And I bring it up because, listen, last year, you know, first year of the Marcus Freeman era, you go eight and four in the regular season, you win your bowl game, all that good stuff. Um, but it was an extension of the Brian Kelly era, as it should have been. That's not a criticism of Marcus Freeman. Um, it was an extension of the Brian Kelly era and, and what Brian Kelly kind of established in the back half of his Notre Dame time was that we have a certain style, like, like Brian Kelly basically said, look, we can recruit a certain type of kid, a certain type of athlete, and we have to play to our strengths and weaknesses. Our strengths are going to be running the football, recruiting great offensive linemen, recruiting great defensive linemen, controlling the line of scrimmage. Not those great elite edge rushers, but, you know, basically controlling the line of scrimmage and trying to grind out wins, 
and hopefully you find a good running back somewhere along the way, whatever. It's been a long time, though, since Notre Dame has had the quarterback position where it's like they got that dude. Maybe it was Brady Quinn. Maybe it was Jimmy Clausen. Maybe at some point Brian Kelly had that guy, but I don't remember. Well, this year, Notre Dame has Sam Hartman, for people who don't remember, the sixth-year guy played at Wake Forest is in. And if you didn't pay attention to Wake Forest football, remember two years ago they played for an ACC title. But this guy is, and I'm not exaggerating, this isn't hyperbole when I say this, he is one of the statistically best quarterbacks in the history of forget Wake Forest football of the ACC in football. That sounds crazy. But remember, two years ago, Hartman on Wake Forest threw for 39 touchdown passes. Last year, he threw for 38, all while complete, uh, all while throwing for close to 13,000 yards over the course of his career. That is insane. Well, what is that? 70 plus touchdowns, about 80 touchdowns the last two years, 77 if my math is correct off the top of my head. That is incredible. And now he's coming to Notre Dame. And I think he's coming to Notre Dame at the perfect time. One, you know, it's the end of the 14 playoff era. But I I do think if you're Marcus Freeman, last year, year one, you kind of got a pass. It was kind of like, hey, you know, you're we're transitioning. We're keeping you because we want to keep the team together. And because we believe you can prove to be an elite recruiter. Problem for Marcus Freeman, his two highest ranked recruits decommitted right around signing day. Keon Keeley goes to Alabama. Uh, Peyton Bowen, I believe was the kid's name, ends up at, I want to say, Oklahoma. So the recruiting didn't go quite as planned. And you regressed on the field. This year, you got to produce. I'm not saying, you know, and to be clear, when I say all this, I'm not saying that if uh, if Marcus Freeman goes eight and four, he's going to be fired. Like, that's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is you want to see improvement. It's your own program. And you put your stamp on your program this year by adding Sam Hartman. We'll be curious to see, especially against a tough schedule. Remember all those big games last year, they got them again this year. Ohio State, they at least get it home. USC, they get it home. Those were both road games last year. They're at home this year. And they do have to go to Clemson late in the year as well. So thankless schedule. But Notre Dame, for the first time in forever, has a quarterback. And if you can marry some really good quarterback play with everything else they've done well, the team has a chance to be very good. Let's keep it going. And I just, you know, I kind of mentioned in passing, like, a little bit of heat on Marcus Freeman if it doesn't go well this season. Well, there's a lot of heat right now, this second, on a guy we name, uh, on a guy by the name of Jimbo Fish. And by now, you know the story. You don't need me to retell it and relitigate it. Uh, but coming off of a five and seven year, uh, the buyout is massive. Now, to be blunt, I think that the thirst to see Jimbo Fisher fired, I think it's a little bigger nationally than locally. I think AM fans want to give Jimbo Fisher every chance they can for him to prove them right, for him to justify the salary that he is being paid. But obviously, a huge part of the conversation is like, what happens if it goes wrong? What happens if you have another five and seven year? That is a 70-plus million dollar buyout that if it goes off the rails, I don't know where that money comes from, but I don't think you can have a two straight losing seasons going into next season and expect Jimbo Fisher to be back. What I would keep saying, though, my thing is, I actually wonder if it's a little bit of the opposite. I actually think AM is a little bit underrated coming into the year. First of all, the Bobby Petrino stuff, I think it's the most overblown non-story in college football. You talk to the players at SEC Media Days. They said basically, first team meeting, Jimbo Fisher introduced Petrino and walked out. Uh, Petrino had some interesting comments at media availability on Sunday where he basically said, like, Jimbo's the boss. Like, I'm here to do what Jimbo wants, but we're also here to put up points and win games. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they're two big egos. Maybe Jimbo won't be able to handle seeing somebody else call plays. I don't think it's that much of an issue, though. And if it's not, watch out. I think AM has a chance to be really good. Remember, last year, for all the talk about all the things that went wrong, this was a team that by the end of the year was down to their third-string quarterback, a true freshman in Connor Wegman. Now, maybe happenstance might be that it was the best thing that could have ever happened because he got on-the-field reps, including beating LSU in the season finale. 
but they also had a ton of injuries elsewhere. Nia Smith, their best wide receiver, probably Evan Stewart's right in that conversation was out for about the last three quarters of the season. He's back. O-line was beat up all season. Defense was beat up all season. And that's to me where it gets interesting is because now you have a lot of guys coming back from injury, but you also have a lot of guys that got game reps and game experience because of the fact that so many guys got hurt last year. So I'm not saying this is a perfect team, not saying they're going undefeated, not saying they're winning the SEC, but I believe they have a chance to be significantly improved. Remember two, went five and seven last year, lost five of those seven games by a touchdown or less. You don't have to be leaps and bounds better. You have to be a play or two better. We've talked about it all offseason. Remember, this was a team that was a batted pass away from beating Alabama at Alabama. This was a team that outscored South Carolina literally after the opening play of the game. South Carolina returns the opening kick for a touchdown. Uh, Texas A&M outscores them from there. This was also a team that just had a lot of really bad luck. I mean, remember when half the team came down with the flu before the Florida game? I I can't remember all the details. It was bad, though. It wasn't half, but it was probably, you know, 18, 20 guys that weren't in uniform. So I just bring it up because, to me, This team is fascinating from two perspectives. What if it goes really wrong? But what if it goes right? And what are the comments there? Be fascinating to watch. Same scale. Let's talk about the other big team in that state. That's the Texas Longhorns. And Texas is the exact opposite. It's amazing, right? Jimbo Fisher could save a a drowning puppy and it would be, oh, 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 Jimbo Fisher, he's overpaid. Oh, my goodness. Texas, on the other hand, it's like, oh, they went seven and five. They're back, baby. Wait till next year. It's always wait till next year with Texas. Now, granted, it's the same way with AM, but I just bring it up because when I when I think about Texas, it's amazing. They went eight and five last year, probably lost a game or two that they shouldn't have, lost their bowl game to Washington. And what ends up happening? Oh, Quiddy Ors is back. Sark's a genius. Big 12 favorites, which they were picked to win the Big 12. 12th nationally highest ranked team in the first coaches poll in college football. Here's my question though. What happens if it goes wrong for them in the same way? What if it goes right for AM? Now, I don't think Sark is getting fired. It would take, it's almost like Jimbo. I, it would take a disaster the likes of which we are not expecting for it to really fall apart for Texas and for Steve Sarkeesian to really be in, in risk of losing his job. But I've said it many times. Steve Sarkeesian has never won more than eight games in any regular season as a college football head coach. And it's not like he started at Grand Valley State or Central Michigan or Eastern Washington or Texas, uh, you know, San Antonio or whatever. He's coached at Washington, USC, and Texas. And he's never won more than eight games in a regular season. And don't tell me all this stuff about, oh, my goodness. You know, I mean, he needs, like, I get it. He needs time. Nick Saban was also playing for an SEC title in year two. Kirby Smart was playing for a national title in year two. Chip Kelly at Oregon played for a national title in year two. So the quick flip can be done. It can especially be done in the portal era. Oh, by the way, I think Lincoln Riley in a much tougher league won 11 regular season games last year in the Pac-12. But I bring it up because if history tells us anything, it's not that Texas is back. It's not that they're going to be competing for a playoff spot. I think it's more likely that they're back in that eight and four, nine and three ish, good but not great phase than they are. We're 11 and one, and we're going to the to Jerry World to play for a Big 12 title and then for a playoff spot. So it'll be fascinating to watch. It'll be fascinating to see. That to me is one of the most intriguing storylines. Obviously, if Texas is good, that's wild. But what if they again, eight and four, nine and three, lose a game they shouldn't to a team they shouldn't? What is the conversation then? Finally, let me lastly say this. And we talked a little bit about it with the Florida State LSU game, which is going to kick off the season. This is the last year of the 14 playoff. And so what's intriguing to me, I do think this is a year where we're going to have a lot of teams, in my opinion, that are entering November in position to make a college football playoff. And that is what is so intriguing to me. What just just the playoff race in general? Let me explain why. We all know that the playoff for some years, the last couple of years have been better, but for some years it was dominated by the same couple teams: Bama, Clemson, Ohio State, 
maybe one or two others. You look across college football landscape this year, this feels as wide open as I can ever remember it. Clemson, for the first time, I think this is the first time in the playoff era, the ACC has two legitimate teams in the preseason that you could see making the college football playoff. Clemson and Florida State's right there. Florida State was ranked ahead of Clemson in the coaches poll earlier this week. Um, Clemson's obviously, I think Clemson's absolutely good enough with the new offensive coordinator, Garrett Riley and Cade Klubnick, a quarterback, the big 10 to me, I think there's three teams that can legitimately get in Penn state's really good. They have an advantageous schedule. They do have to go to Ohio state, but no Wisconsin, Iowa at home, Michigan at home, no big out of conference games. West Virginia is the biggest one that they have. I could see them being 11 and one playing for a playoff spot. The Pac-12 speaks for itself, right? USC, Oregon, Washington, Utah. I don't think anything is separating those four teams. Could one of them finally get the Pac-12 a a playoff spot in the final year of the Pac-12? And then finally, the SEC. Big 12 obviously speaks for itself. Two, three really good teams. The SEC, in my opinion, three teams. Would it surprise you if LSU was in? Would it surprise you if Bama was in? Obviously, wouldn't surprise you if Georgia was in. So that is number two. That is number five to me today. Number 10 overall. The most intriguing storylines in college football coming into this year. How wide open the playoff is. That's in addition to Bama with a chip on its shoulder. Notre Dame with a real quarterback. What's next for Jimbo? What's next for Sark? Great college football season ahead. All right, this is what we're going to do. Take a quick break. And when we come back, as I told you, you had a homework assignment. I'm going to find out if you completed it or not. We're talking Johnny Manziel documentary, quick break. We will be. All right, we're going to get back to the show in a minute. But before we do, I want to welcome back our presenting sponsor, Betfred Sportsbook and the Betfred Sportsbook app. By now, you know Betfred's story started in 1967 in the UK, over a 1,000 shops in the UK, and they have now come to the United States and made a major splash. They are the presenting sponsor of not only all things Aaron Torres Media, but the Colorado Rockies, the Denver Broncos, the Cincinnati Bengals. And what I love about Betfred, nobody takes care of their customers quite like Betfred does. I've been telling you that for a year. We have sent listeners of the Aaron Torres pod to Denver Broncos VIP tailgates. The Betfred suite at Cincinnati Bengals games is rocking. Betfred betters have thrown out first pitch at the Colorado Rockies games. Nobody takes care of their customers quite like Betfred. And here is what they are doing for you right now. How about this? Bet $50 on any game. Get up to $1,111 in free bets. Here's how it works. Download the Betfred Sportsbook app. Bet 50 bucks on anything you want to bet on. You automatically get $111 in free bets. But beyond that, you get up to $200 in insurance for your first five weeks as a Betfred customer, totaling $1,111 in free bets. I've told you for a year, nobody takes care of their customers quite like Betfred. They're the only book that I bet with. And I want to thank Betfred for being our presenting sponsor. I'm back. Gonna be back. Gonna be back. Ah, so here's the deal. It's time to find out who listened to Wednesday's Aaron Torres pod. Because on Wednesday's show, I said, everybody, you boys and girls, you got yourself a homework assignment before Friday's show. On Friday's show, the plan is we will talk the new Johnny Manziel documentary on this show. And so I said, everybody, listeners of the show, thousands of you worldwide, you have yourselves a homework assignment. Watch the documentary so that we can talk about it on Friday. So what I will say to that is over the next few minutes, we're talking Johnny Manziel. And obviously, if you have not seen it, we are going to get into the good, the bad, everything about that documentary And I'll also readily acknowledge that it's not often that I tell people to go ahead and skip through this show, but if you have not seen the documentary yet and you want to see it, or you're not sure, and you might watch it this weekend, I'd love for you to stay through this segment, but I also understand if you want to skip through, but do yourself a favor and come back and listen to this segment. So we are going to dive in. This is officially, I'm talking really slow. Because this is 
your last chance. If you have not seen the documentary yet and you do not want spoilers, last chance to go. Have you gone yet? Have you gone yet? Have you gone yet? All right, I'm diving in. No more waiting. No more Mr. Nice Torres here. It is time to dive into this documentary. And let me start by saying this. I'll just say bluntly, and again, we're diving in, spoilers and everything. So there will be no spoilers because hopefully all of you have listened, have seen the show at this point. Let me start by saying this. I actually thought the documentary was much better than I expected it to be. Sometimes when you get these first person narrative documentaries, the whole story isn't told or the person who's the the feature of the documentary is presented in a certain light. If you saw The Last Dance, that was the biggest criticism, right? People said, oh, everybody comes out of that looking bad except for Michael Jordan. Now, I fundamentally sort of disagree with that sentiment of The Last Dance, but the bottom line is sometimes these documentaries, you don't get the full real story. This one you do, and I give Johnny Manziel credit because it's not only him, but his family members, his close friends, they give you the highs and the lows, the good and the bad. Manziel talks about his substance abuse issues, and so I give him credit. Now, I'll say bluntly, if you know people who know Johnny Manziel, and I'm fortunate enough to know a few, they will tell you he is always good in front of the cameras, always good presenting himself, always good making you like him. And so maybe I was manipulated like so many others were through the years, but I came away liking this guy more than I expected. And I'll also say, I came away, I think, feeling differently about both his time at Texas A&M and the NFL a lot differently as well. First off, the thing that really struck me, and again, we all live through it, but I think reliving it 10 years later, it gives you a little bit of a different perspective. What struck me was, one, how fast that guy became famous, okay? Because listen, I, I think there's something to, you know, a lot was put on his plate early. He talks about that. But the difference between him and even most high-profile young athletes is that seemingly in the snap of a finger, his whole life changed. And we they, on the documentary, they talk about the Alabama game. But I was thinking about this, right? So think about even a super famous young athlete in the social media era. Think about like Zion Williamson. You could sit there and say, oh, Zion, you know, he came out of nowhere. He really didn't. I remember watching Zion Williamson clips when he was a sophomore in high school. I'm not saying everybody did, but he had a million plus followers on Instagram before he ever stepped on Duke's campus. Now, Duke may have taken him to another level, but it doesn't change the point that while Zion had a lot on his shoulders, LaMelo Ball had a lot on his shoulders, fill in the blank. You know, Tiger Woods was on TV when he was in basically a two or three year old on Johnny Carson. Johnny Manziel went from we don't even know if he is going to be the starting quarterback at a school that wasn't very good prior to his arrival. We didn't even know. Remember, he got arrested the summer before his senior year or before his freshman year when he started. And if you saw the documentary, they mispronounced his name. Didn't even know how to say his name on the newscast. And I'm probably was the same way when that happened in the summer of 2012. He went from, we weren't even sure if he was going to be a quarterback at an SEC school that we weren't even paying attention to because we didn't think Texas A&M was going to be good to within six months being one of the most famous athletes on the planet, hanging out with Drake, hanging out with LeBron, hanging out with KD, hanging out with Bieber. And I'll say like at the time, I don't think we should feel sympathy. He was obviously making good money, as we learned, and not surprising. Um, Living the time of his life, not handling it well. But I don't think this is just a young athlete that got too much too soon. I think he's a guy that literally went from being basically completely, you know, anonymous to can't even walk out of his dorm in the span of two, three months. In the span of six months, he goes from they don't even know how to pronounce his name to one of the most famous athletes on the planet. And so couldn't have been easy. And at the time, I think I was pretty critical and said like, you know, I mean, you got to handle it better. It's like, I'd like to sit here and pretend that I would have. I think there are certain things I probably would have done differently, but you give me at 19 years old, sophomore year of high school, fame, money, the chance to hang out with Drake. And, you know, Drake wasn't even a thing back then, but you get the point. Like, the biggest rappers, the biggest musicians, the biggest athletes. I just get to go kick it with them. Yeah, I probably would have been irresponsible as well. 
I'll also say this is that the, the, the Texas A&M stuff, the autograph stuff, the second year at A&M, I feel a little bit differently about that as well. Now, admittedly, again, you talk to A&M people. I do think there's some frustration that he wasn't fully committed because I believe that some A&M people believe they had a team good enough to win a national championship in his second year and they went eight and four. But what I would also say is, you know, when all the autograph stuff happened and he got suspended and he's flashing the money sign, you know, it, it was a little annoying. And I remember kind of just being put off by all of it. But what I would also say to that is, again, I don't think that I fully realized um, just how much like literally everything at Texas A&M changed because of Johnny Manziel. And so I know pre-NIL, this was a story as old as time. Well, the school makes money off the athlete, but the athlete doesn't make any money. And you know, my general stance on that has been the school ain't made, the athlete, the school is making a lot of money off the team. I don't know how many individual athletes actually produce commerce and revenue, but Johnny Manziel, like Reggie Bush, like Tim Tebow, like Zion, like Bryce Young, was one of the few guys that did it. And because of who he was when it happened, Texas A&M just getting to the SEC, you could argue from an off-the-field perspective, he was as impactful as anybody in recent memory. Remember, Florida won a national championship with Tim Tebow as a backup. Now, it went to another level when he won the Heisman, then he won a second national title. But I don't think that Florida as a football program and a university that you can say it benefited more than Texas A&M did from Johnny Manziel. And so again, not saying that you should throw your teammates under the bus or that you're above them or that it's okay to act in the manner that he did in a lot of cases. But I do feel a little bit differently about all the autograph stuff now because you sit there and you think back, well, Kevin Sumlin got some massive extension because of that. Um, by the way, if there's no Johnny Manziel, maybe he only survives three, four years. Maybe he doesn't get the second job at Arizona. Now, maybe he's great. I don't know. I'm not here to tear down Kevin Sumlin, uh, you know, send, send uh, strays Kevin Sumlin's way. But Cliff Kingsbury got the Texas Tech job because of Johnny Manziel. Where is that guy's career? Because remember, he gets fired at Texas Tech, then he gets an NFL job after that. Where is Kirk Cliff Kingsbury's career? Texas A&M's as a university, hundreds of millions of dollars pour in. Kyle Field basically blown to smithereens, at least part of it, and rebuilt. And so again, I'd like to sit here and say that if I was 19 years old and I was making literally hundreds of millions for the university, that I would take it all in stride and I'd be happy with books and room and board. But I don't think I would. The last kind of serious thought, then we'll get to some of the much lighter stuff. The mental health stuff I thought was interesting. And to be clear, again, not excusing Johnny Manziel's behavior because I, I, I've been critical of NBA players, of NFL, whoever. And when you're in the NFL, when you're a professional, and I've said this about NBA guys, right? NBA guys load management. You don't want to play, that's fine. You want to tra demand a trade and sit out, that's fine. But you can't keep going to, to pick up your paychecks every two weeks and expect it to be that way. And so when it comes to Manziel, um, you know, if you don't want to be in the NFL, if you don't want to put in the work, that's fine, but don't go get a check. But he did. That is inexcusable. And certainly like the behavior of leaving the team and flying across country. I mean, that is just so crazy. That is, um, I, I mean, I can't even imagine it, right? I mean, imagine if it wasn't the uh, someone as high profile as Manziel. Like, flying across country to Vegas the night before a game, even if you're the backup, feels abjectly insane to me. Now, the NBA, you got 82 games. Uh, you know you're not going to play. Maybe you stay out a little bit later when you go to Miami or you, you stop by in Vegas when you're on your way to L.A. But NFL, 16 games and you're the face of the franchise or one of them insanity. But I still think there's that mental health aspect of it too. It's clear that he wasn't, you know, whatever you, you, if you saw the documentary, you understand. And I do wonder even now, as opposed to 2014, 2015, 2016, how differently that story is approached because of mental health, not excusing the behavior. Certainly, obviously there were some allegations by an ex-girlfriend, all that good stuff. But at the same time, it is wild to think about. Really quickly, let's go through some of the much lighter, more fun things about Manziel. A couple things stood out to me. One, I forgot how wild the NFL draft process was. And it's interesting. I only remembered the part where it was like, he's probably a second or third round pick. 
unless the Cowboys take him and then the Browns traded back into the first round to get him. I had forgotten that there was a window in time. I don't remember how long it was that there was like, oh, he might go number one overall to the Houston Texans. And of course, they tell the incredible story of the Houston Texans owner knows a guy who's playing golf with them in Houston and he's got his shirt off and he's probably had a few too many beverages. Um, and that was when he went off the Texans board. So I had completely forgotten about the fact that some people thought at some points that he was potentially going to go number one in the draft. Uh, obviously, maybe the craziest story out of the entire uh, 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 documentary, the fact that his father and mother faked essentially a heart attack. I think it was they asked the dad, but the mom ended up doing it so that he didn't have to take a drug test at the NFL combine. Like, what? What are we talking about? Now, listen, in hindsight, there's probably a little bit of a heavier uh, conversation about enablement, addiction, all that stuff. I'm not here to have that conversation today. But your mom fakes a heart attack so you don't have to take a piss test at the combine. Are you freaking kidding me? That is insane. You know what else is insane? And I hadn't heard this story until the documentary. There's obviously the relationship with Uncle Nate, which we'll get into in a minute. I remember him being kind of a, a negative influence publicly. But the fact that when all the stuff went down with the NCAA, they basically convinced everybody, oh, Johnny comes from oil money. M money's not an issue. That, that's why he's driving around in fancy cars. That's why he's flying on private jets. And uh, I talked to somebody again who knows Manziel, and I, I think he's pretty well off, relatively speaking. His family is. But the fact that they made up that he's like an oil billionaire was unbelievable. And that was one I had not heard. Like, I had never heard that anywhere under any circumstances. I thought that was hysterical. Um, I will say... I was kind of blown away by that the iPad thing became that big of a deal. Now, I will tell you at the time, I knew somebody kind of in that NFL quarterback world, you know, like like the quarterback world is pretty small. You know, it's, it starts with the Elite 11 and kind of works its way up. But I, I, I remember somebody basically telling me that story is that it's 2014. We have this crazy technology where you can track how much film is being watched on an iPad. And basically, Manziel didn't watch any of them. not excusing his behavior. But I, I was a little surprised that that was the story that made the rounds after the documentary. Cause I didn't, maybe I knew too much, but I didn't really find it that interesting. Only other thought and a um, little bit of a, a sort of serious one. I think it's time for Johnny football to make amends with, uh, with uncle Nate. And I get it right. I'm in a professional setting and I get that. Um, Publicly, Uncle Nate was the bad influence on Johnny, and Johnny needed to drop him to get straight. I'll be honest, I'm getting a lot of John Morant vibes. We've talked about John Morant on this show. Uh, you know, the guy Devontae Pack that's always with him has basically been cut from his life. We'll see if Ja cleans up the mess, but it feels like Devontae Pack's the fall guy. It's clear Uncle Nate's the fall guy. Uh, and it's clear he wasn't, you know, he wasn't the enabler. He was along for the ride, but but you know, Johnny football. Uh, obviously had demons after uncle Nate left, but the wild part was, you know, I, I remember him being so omnipresent during that era. I had no idea that they hadn't talked basically since they cut him loose right before the draft. So Johnny Manziel, if you're watching, which I know you're not go ahead and give uncle Nate a call. He's a good guy. He probably deserves a little bit better than the way he was treated. All right, I just want to do take a quick break. When we come back, we are going to wrap our Friday show. Aaron Wright, Aaron Wrong. By the way, I hope you enjoyed the document. I thought it was so, so, so good. I might watch it again on my plane as I head out of town for a few days. We are going to take a quick break. We will be right back. Aaron Wright, Aaron Wrong. Be right back. All right, everybody. I am back. Good to be back. Good to be back. Final segment of the show. Final segment of the week. So good to be back. And I do want to go ahead and wrap with America's favorite podcast segment where Aaron was right, where Aaron was wrong. By now, you know the drill for this segment. Yes, I stole it from my buddy Colin Cowherd. Colin does where Colin was right, where Colin was wrong every single week, giving his best and worst takes, and I decided to bring it to the Aaron Torres pod for one very simple reason. It is because over the course of a week, a month, a year, two years, five years, ten years, nobody loves giving out more hot sports takes than your boy Torres, but here's the problem. While I like to tell you all the ones I get right, Torres told you this, should have listened to Torres, 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 I get a lot of stuff wrong too. 
And so every single week we do where Aaron was right, where Aaron was right, highlighting my best takes of the week, month, year, whatever, but also acknowledging I get a lot of stuff wrong too. Let's get to it where Aaron was right, where Aaron was wrong, where Aaron was right. So last week, it goes without saying, the Pac-12 falls apart. We get it. You don't need me to remind you of all the details. At the same time where Aaron was right, I was telling you for a year, keep an eye on this Pac-12 TV deal because the longer this goes, where those schools are not tied together, the more likely it is that this conference doesn't survive. And I remember a few times over the course of the year, I got some pushback. Torres, you're talking, who cares? It's the Pac-12. They're going to figure it out and they're going to play mediocre football. And who cares? It's not the SEC or the Big Ten. And I get it. But I kept saying, just pay attention. This is important. The fact that they are not bound together beyond June of 2024, that means something. And so I've been telling you for months, keep an eye on this. I've been telling the schools for months. I've been telling the Pac-12 for months. You better lock up these schools. The longer it goes, the more likely these schools are to look around. Well, fast forward last week. We know the details. And now the Pac-12 will play an incredible season of college football this year and then disintegrate into the college sports ether in June of 2024. Where Aaron was wrong. Let's stay on the Pac-12 theme, and I'll say this. When USC and UCLA left for the Big Ten last year, I remember everybody, oh, what's the next step, and who's going with them? And I said, listen, if Oregon and Washington, if, if, the, if the Big Ten wanted Oregon and Washington, they would have taken them this time around. They don't want anybody else. They're staying at 16. Now, I believe in my heart of hearts, the plan was to stay at 16. Circumstances changed it. The Pac-12 fell apart. It was clear that Arizona and maybe some other schools were leaving for the Big 12. And so, obviously, there was no way I could see that part happening, the Big 12 being so aggressive. But it doesn't change the fact that a year ago, I said if the Big 10 wanted Oregon and Washington, they would have taken them. They did not take them. Oregon and Washington figure out a plan B. Same time, I give those schools credit. It appeared all year that they had no interest in going to the Big 12, whether their plan was to hold the Pac-12 together for another year or two or whether they knew all along. I give them credit. Didn't think they were going to get that invite. They officially did last week. They officially signed up. Oregon and Washington joining USC and UCLA in the Big 10, where Aaron was right. Let's get to a little bit of some college football news and notes. Earlier this week, the college football coaches poll came out. And what do you know? I've been telling you all off season long that Alabama is better than people are giving it credit for. I get the excitement around LSU, but watch out for Bama. They're on a mission. There's a revenge tour factor to them. And I don't get why everybody is so in love with LSU. Well, it turns out voters agreed with me. Because you know who was number three in that poll? It was the Alabama Crimson Tide. I'm telling you, listen, I get that in life, we all want to move on to the next thing. We all want something new. We all want something exciting. I'm here to tell you, sometimes the old thing that we've been watching be awesome forever uh, is still awesome, and that's okay. It's okay to like Patrick Mahomes without needing a new quarterback. to like, Like, nobody gets tired of Patrick Mahomes. Nobody gets tired of Steph Curry. Stop being tired of Alabama. There is going to be a day when Nick Saban is gone, but I promise you, every year that Nick Saban is there, they are going to have a chance to win a national championship. And so we'll see what happens. Not saying that they will, but I've said all offseason, you guys can take all your LSU stock. I will hold my Bama stock, which has never been lower. Apparently the voters in the coaches poll agree. Where Aaron was wrong. So it's what we just talked about. Um, My opinion on Johnny Manziel very much did change after that documentary. I'm not saying he's a perfect person. I'm not even saying that what he did wasn't wrong. Um, And again, as I said a minute ago, if you talk to Texas A&M people, people that covered him, people that are around him every day, they do say that he has a gift for making people like him. And so maybe he just pulled the ultimate con job on me. But at the same time, after watching that documentary, a couple things stood out. I don't think I realized just how much seemingly everybody at AM took advantage of Johnny Manziel from the school building, essentially a new Kyle field, 
Kevin Sumlin got tens of millions of dollars that he wouldn't have otherwise. Cliff Kingsbury got a job. The application, everybody was making money off Johnny football except for Johnny football. But then two, also the pressure that came with it. Not excusing his behavior, but as I said a moment ago, I look back on that era and it and he went from literally nobody knew who he was to hanging out with Drake and LeBron and KD in six months. I said it a minute ago, even Zion Williamson, that was a guy that had millions of followers in high school. People knew who he was. Same with LaMelo Ball, same with some of these other guys. Johnny Manziel went from nobody knew who he was to one of the biggest celebrities in sports in six months. Feel bad, again, not excusing his behavior, but that documentary did change my opinions on Johnny Manziel. Let's keep it going where Aaron was right. Let's go back to the Pac-12 because I've said all offseason. I've said, you know what really sucks about all this talk about realignment, expansion, whatever? It's the fact that it's taking away from what should be a really, 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 really good season in the Pac-12 in college football. Well, top 25 came out, coaches poll on Tuesday, and guess what? I was dead right with five, count them, five teams in the top 20, uh, the top 20, excuse me, USC, Oregon, Utah, Washington, Oregon State. By the way, I think UCLA will be very good this year. I think Arizona will be much improved, and certainly Colorado is going to be interesting. So listen, we're not going to do revisionist history. We're not going to you know, shed a trail of tears wishing that the Pac-12 had stayed together. It would have been great. It didn't happen. But I believe this will be the most competitive league in college football this year. And I think you take out the SEC, you start talking teams one to six, one to seven, one to eight. There's nobody better than the Pac-12, again, outside of USC or outside of the SEC, excuse me, where Aaron was wrong. May have hit on this a few weeks ago, but I want to circle back. What John Calipari did in the last couple months to put together a roster, I got to give the man credit because I was the guy all spring long. You got to be more aggressive in the portal. What are you doing, Coach Cal? Stop wasting your time. Go get some dudes. And if you remember, June 1st, 2023, Kentucky had seven players on its roster, five freshmen and two sophomores who barely played last year. I bring it up because they are now up to 12 scholarship players most notably last week, adding a seven foot two Croatian big man, Zanavir Ivicevic, who is an NBA draft prospect. Listen, I know every time I compliment Calipari, it's going to be, well, let's see what he does with all that talent, blah, blah, blah. And, and we'll see what happens. I cannot, I can't promise number nine for Kentucky. But what I can say, this was a roster that had no depth, no experience, lacking a lot of things on June 1st. He adds two freshmen, he adds the Croatian big man, he adds a transfer from West Virginia, and he gets back Antonio Reeves, a player from last year who was in the portal. I didn't see it coming, yet here we go. Kentucky again as a top 10 to 15 team in the country and one that is good enough to win the SEC this year. Finally, last couple where Aaron was right. So I think last Aaron right, Aaron wrong, we talked about Hugh Freeze nabbing that five-star linebacker who had been committed to Georgia. Well, few days later, guess what he did? Landed a five-star uh, wide receiver, Perry Thompson, who had been committed to Alabama, flips Perry Thompson from Bama to Auburn. Auburn now has like a top 12 to 15 class in the country. But here's the thing. The player-by-player -player ranking. They have the fourth highest ranked class behind only Bama, Georgia, and Ohio State. And it all comes back to one man, Hugh Freeze. And you can sit there and say, oh, it's NIL. It's this. It's that. I don't really care. Everybody has NIL. Everybody has access to money. Every team in the SEC does. Every team, by the way, I don't even know if NIL is why they're choosing the, the Auburn. But what I'm here to say is Brian Harson had access to, to NIL last year. He wasn't landing players like this. Hugh Freeze was always the best guy for the job. I think he's going to kill it at Auburn. I don't know what their ceiling is in a 16-team SEC and in an SEC that now has Texas and Oklahoma on top of Bama, LSU, Georgia. But I would also counter by saying this. This is the 12-team playoff era. Getting out of divisions in the SEC will actually probably make things a little bit easier for Auburn. And I don't know if you I don't know if you freeze can win a championship. I, I'm not saying that. But are they going to be significantly improved? 
Are they going to be organized? Are they going to be disciplined? Are they going to do things that winning football teams do? Yes. Just like I told you, Hugh Freeze has won everywhere he's gone, and it ain't going to stop at all. Finally, where Aaron was wrong. Don't know how much I hit on this during the offseason, but I, I was a little confused as to what UCLA basketball was doing. This was, again, an organiza- a program, excuse me, that if you remember, um, basically lost everybody off of a team that just made a Sweet 16 this year. Uh, and really a core of players that had been to three straight Sweet 16s and a Final Four in 2021. Well, as we discussed on Monday's show, and we did a long segment on it, if you missed it, go back and check it out. They signed two international players this weekend that are both projected as first-round NBA draft picks, and they actually have a third international player that's projected as a second-round pick as well. And so, listen, I'm not a scouting guru. That's not my role, not my area of expertise. But the kid Adai Mara is a kid that many believe could be a top five to top ten pick. And then the Burka kid, I don't even want to try to pronounce his last name, from Turkey, is a guy that many believe will be a late first rounder this coming season. So credit Mick Cronin, my guy Big Mick Energy, did not know if UCLA was going to be able to put a competitive team on the floor. And in the span of like two months, they added three potential picks, including two top 20 or so players potentially in college basketball. All right, I think that's it for this episode of the Airtour Sports Podcast. It is time for me to get out of here. If you're not subscribed, please make sure to do so. Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Music, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure that you're subscribed. Also, make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. If you want to leave a review, that would be very helpful. But yeah, that's all I really got. That's all for today's show. Again, next week we will be doing our over-under previews. Monday will be the SEC East, the SEC West, and of course the Pac-12. And then when I get back from vacation the following week, it's game week, baby. It's time for week zero. We are going to have so much fun. I got my playoff picks ready. I got my surprises, my disappointments, my this, my that. So it is go time, and I am so excited to be here. That's all for today's show, though. It is time for me to get out of here. Thank you, guys and girls, for your support. Shout out to Torque. Shout out to Rachel, who hates my voice. Shout out to JJ Reddick, you F it. Unblock me, bro. I will be back two Mondays. I'll be back on Monday. We'll do episodes next week. But two Mondays from now with new episodes of the Aaron Torres pod. Download the SEC previews and the Pac-12 previews next week. I'll be back soon, people.